Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. We began looking at Isaiah 61, the first three verses last Sunday. We're going to be looking at this passage throughout the month of September because it was a key passage that the elders considered as we talked about the future direction of our church. Isaiah chapter 61, again I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Please give your attention to God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I would ask you this morning to consider for just a moment how many words you process in any given day. Just trace your path through a typical day. You wake up in the morning, maybe you turn on the radio and listen to sports radio or talk radio as you get ready in the morning. Hopefully after that, after you're ready, you sit down and read your Bible for a while maybe a devotional, and spend some time in prayer. As you eat your breakfast, you might read the Center Daily Times to catch up on the morning's news. might have a conversation with your wife or your kids before you leave for work or school. You sit at work and either read reports or sit in meetings and listen to people talk. And then at lunchtime, you might take a moment to check Facebook or Twitter or favorite website or two. As you leave work at the end of a long day full of words, you get in your car and you listen to the radio. You might listen to music lyrics. As you get home, you might jump on the treadmill and stick the headphones on and either listen to music or a podcast or two. Sit down, watch the evening news, maybe watch a favorite TV program or two, maybe pick up a magazine to read as you lie down to go to bed at night. Just think, in a typical day, how many words you're processing. Did a little quick internet research and found out that researchers say that we're capable, capable of hearing and processing, not just hearing, but hearing and processing a maximum of 750,000 words during our waking hours, if you're awake for, say, 16 hours a day. 750,000 words, if that's all you did all day long was listen. An average adult is able to read and understand approximately 300 words in a, um, I'm sorry, 300,000 words in a typical day. 300,000 words, if that's all you did all day long was to read. So if you spend, if you do, as I assume most of you do, spend, especially if you're students, if you spend most of your day either listening to words or reading words, 
How many words are you processing? Hundreds of thousands, probably. The question I'd ask you to consider this morning is how many of those hundreds of thousands of words are actually edifying to your soul? Are actually making you a better person in the sight of your God? We live in an information society, and those kind of numbers that I just threw out wouldn't have been true 50 years ago or 100 years ago or certainly two or 300 years ago. We are exposed to so much information, so many words, that our forefathers couldn't have even imagined. But as I thought about those big numbers, I was reminded of that old poem that many of us learned in grade school about the sailor who was lost at sea. Remember what he said? Water, water, everywhere, but not a drop to drink. That's how it feels sometimes with all the words and information that are bombarding us all day long. It also reminds me of the prophet Amos. Amos was called by God to proclaim God's word to God's people at a time when they were living in somewhat luxury, but were living also in apostasy. They were rebelling against God. They were living in idolatry and sin. And these are the words that Amos brought to the people of God in his day. Listen to what he said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Those are ominous words. Ominous words. That the people of God had refused to hear God's word, had ignored God's word, had treated God's word like they were unimportant for so long that God's patience was about to run out and God was going to withdraw his word from his people. And the next thing that comes after silence from the throne of heaven is judgment from God. And that's what happened. God destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel that Amos was prophesying to. And then sent Assyria, as we talked about last week, against the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God's people were just on the verge of being extinguished shortly after Amos proclaimed these words. But we've been looking at Isaiah. And what's interesting is you think about the progress. God's people refuse God's words. They turn a deaf ear to God's prophets, to his words. And then God withdraws his word, and then he sends judgment against his people as discipline. Judgment against those who will not repent, and discipline to those who do. And then God speaks again in his grace. What what an amazing moment of grace when God begins to speak to his people again after he's judged them. And that's really what the prophet Isaiah was about. There's a lot of words of judgment in what Isaiah had to say, but he's the one who brought hope promise, a message of grace to God's people. Isaiah prophesied about 50 years after Amos, after judgment had come, speaking to a people who were about to be taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. But he brings them a message of hope. 
And as we began to look at Isaiah 61 last week, we pointed out that the end of the book of Isaiah is really that glorious vision of God's future for God's people. Here's what God is going to do for his people in the future. And remember, the key metaphor is at the end of verse 3. He says, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We talked about this last week, that the oak tree in Old Testament times in Palestine, the oak tree was one of the largest, most majestic, strongest, most long-lived trees that they knew about. And so the oak tree became a spiritual symbol of spiritual vitality, strength, longevity, and stability. And that's the image, that's the symbol that God is placing before his people to say, I am going to make you like oaks of righteousness. This is to a people who have just been cut down. He says, I am going to restore you. And we saw last week that that work of restoration among the people of God was going to happen when God sent his anointed one. The one he was referring to back at the beginning of verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Remember the word anointed one is the word that we later use Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one. And we showed that the person speaking here in Isaiah 61 is not Isaiah himself. But these are the words of the promised anointed one, the words of the promised Messiah who was to come. And we last week we took time to go through the book of Isaiah and show who this Messiah was, who was this anointed one. We saw back in chapter 7 that he was the virgin-born son. He was a boy born of a virgin who is to be called Emmanuel or God with us. And as chapter 9 said, he was the one who would be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. We saw in chapter 11 how he was the one that promised shoot from the stump of Jesse. God had cut his people down, but from the family of Jesse, which is the family of David, from the royal family, he was going to raise up a great king, a shoot from the stump of the family of Jesse. And that king's reign would cause the wolf and the lion and the lamb to lie down together. That not only would God's people be restored to become oaks of righteousness, but all of creation would be brought to peace and perfection again. And then we look briefly at Isaiah 53. Because that's the key chapter in this whole prophecy. Because that's where this great, mighty king, this Messiah, the anointed one, the one bringing God's word, this is the one where he is shown to be the suffering servant. The one who was wounded for our transgressions, the one who was crushed for our iniquities, the one who died in our place, bearing our sins, so that we might be forgiven. The one who, having died for his people, was raised from the dead so that, according to Isaiah 53, many would be made to be accounted righteous. That's you and me who come to him by faith. 
And so the anointed one, the one speaking here in Isaiah 61, is this God-man, born of a virgin, known to be God among us, who was the king in the line of David, who was to reign eternally over all the universe and bring restoration and perfection to the kingdom. And he was going to do it by putting his life on the line, by becoming a sacrifice of atonement, bearing our sins upon himself and allowing God's wrath to punish him completely so that our sins are paid for in full. So when you look at Isaiah 61, you have to look at it against the dark backdrop of Isaiah 53. Because what the Messiah, what the anointed one says in, in chapter 61 is only true because chapter 3, 53 has already happened in God's plan. Sin has been paid for. And it's in that context that the Messiah says, I am going to plant, replant, restore God's people so that they become oaks of righteousness. And as we looked at last week, Jesus, in his first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, he read this passage from Isaiah 61 and said to the people that day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the anointed one. I am the suffering servant. I am the king who would establish his kingdom and restore all things to perfection again. And so the question I want to look at this morning, that's all by way of review. The question I want to look at this morning is, how does it happen? How does this restoration take place? Now that Christ has accomplished all that's necessary for it to happen, how does it happen? And that's what Isaiah 61 is about. And there's three phrases in here I want to point out in verses 1 and 2. Again, the crucified and risen Messiah is speaking these words and he uses three key phrases. The first one is that he is coming, he's being sent by God to bring the good news to the poor. And then he says to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. First of all, he says to bring good news to the poor. He to evangelize the poor. And we saw last week that in in view here is not people who are materially poor or financially poor, but primarily spiritually poor. Because he goes on to say that those broken hearted people will be bound up. They'll be healed. He's coming to proclaim good news so that broken hearted people can be made well again. Poor in spirit. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, peace, restoration, wholeness. Secondly, he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And again, it's spiritual freedom that he's talking about, not literal physical freedom. So that those who are bound up are set free. And again, he's talking about spiritual freedom. Freedom from the power of sin, the enslaving power of sin, and the penalty that sin brings upon us. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, when he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, 
you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Real freedom. Even if you're in literal prison. Spiritual freedom. Freedom from sin, the world, and the devil. And then thirdly, he would come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That the Messiah, the anointed one, would come to proclaim God's favor and his judgment. To bring an invitation of grace, but a warning of judgment to come. He would come proclaiming both grace and judgment, mercy and justice. The whole counsel of God. The whole good news. And the result, it says here in Isaiah 61, is that those who receive that proclamation, their mourning shall be comforted. And Jesus himself said when he came, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their spiritual brokenness, who mourn over their own sins, who mourn over the effect of their sins, they shall be comforted. What I'm trying to point out here is that when this Messiah came, he came with the power of the word. Because of what he would do on the cross that Isaiah 53 describes in such graphic detail, because of his death for us, for our sins, the power of the implementation of his kingdom would come by his word alone. And to me, that makes all the sense in the world. Because how did creation get here? How did the universe get here in the beginning? It was by the power of the word of God alone. And so the restoration of the universe is going to come by the power of the word alone. That reminds me of one of what I feel to be one of the most simple but most profound arguments in favor of Christianity as the truth and every other religion being a lie. It's because when I look at the world, and again, this is just using observation. When I look at the world, it's impossible for me to believe that a universe that is this complex, this interdependent, this beautiful, could possibly have ever been the result of blind chance or accidents. And vast majority of people will grant you that, that there was some kind of creator. But then as I look at creation and the universe a little more closely, what's obvious to me is that human beings are different from the rest of creation. There is a huge difference between human beings and all the rest of the creatures that this creator has put on this planet. And when I think about what those differences are, it's related to our intelligence and our rationality and our emotions and our relational nature. These are things that set us apart, make us unique among all of God's creatures. And so this wise and powerful creator obviously singled out human beings for some special purpose. That's just obvious to me from observation. And so when I think about that and I think, what is 
crucial to our intelligence and our emotions and our relational ability. And what is it except words? Words are essential to what makes us unique. The way that we relate to one another with words, the way we communicate knowledge and information and wisdom by words. Words are crucial to our uniqueness in this created order. And so what that tells me is that our creator thinks words are really important. And obviously, what kind of a creator would create us like this and not try to communicate with us? Not try to verbally communicate with us. I'm sorry, but if that argument doesn't make sense to you, I mean, it's just, to me, that's basic observation. I haven't gotten to anything about the Bible yet. But that's where you say, well, then, okay, if it makes sense that this creator would use words to communicate with us and and relate to us in some way, then which holy book has the best claim to be God's word? And I, you know, this may sound to hear, it may sound weird to hear a preacher say this from the pulpit, but I would encourage you to go read other holy books because there is no competition. I don't know if you've ever read the Koran or the writings of Confucius or, or, you know, it's just, there's nothing out there that even comes close to explaining what we're like, what God is like, what the world is like, and why the world is in the condition that it's in. Why we struggle and suffer and fight. There's nothing else that explains it, even remotely, as well as this book. And beyond that, once you see that, once you see that this, just intellectually, rationally, is a good explanation of the universe, so this must be the word that God has given us, you give it a chance, you taste it, You see, it works. It transforms. It is powerful. There's something supernatural about this book. If you just give it a chance to speak into your life. And so if this book transforms us, then it is God's word and it is the only hope for change. What Isaiah 61 is talking about is a transformation that begins in the hearts of God's people. As God transforms broken, mourning sinners like you and me into oaks of righteousness. That transformation happens by the word. Bob Dylan came out with a new album this week. Great album. I know... A lot of people don't get Bob Dylan, but if you get Bob Dylan, get this album. It's a great album. But one thing that intrigued me, I was reading some of the reviews that came out in an interview that he did with Rolling Stone magazine. And in that interview, they tried to bait him into a controversial political statement. They said to Bob Dylan, they said, they should have known better. But they said to Bob, you know, you picked up on a theme that's in the album about transformation or change and they said how do you feel about the change in the country right now you know our last president came in on a agenda of change and hope how do you feel about that bob would never take that bait he would never never make a controversial statement like that just to make them happy listen to what he said he says i don't have any opinion on that but then he said you have to change your heart if you want to change. 
You have to change your heart if you want to change. The problem is we can't do that. But that's what the anointed one is promising here in Isaiah 61. And that change from the core, the center of your being, that change happens by the word of God. That's the active agent. That's why in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why the word of God is more essential to your life than the air that you breathe. That's why Jesus said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And praise God, we have it given to us as a gift. And the power of the word, again, goes back to the power of the cross. The Bible isn't powerful to change hearts and lives and society because it's so wise, even though it is, or because it's so moral, even though it is. It's because it is the word of the risen Jesus Christ who died for our sins. At the end of chapter 61, notice verse 11. Here's another visionary statement of this garden of oaks of righteousness. It says, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. But look at what that is based upon back in verse 10. That happens because of what verse 10 talks about. Where it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The gospel. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But the Lord God took our robe of filthiness and sin and placed it upon Christ on the cross and once he had died and paid for our sins in full, he took the robe of Christ's righteousness and put it upon us. And because that has happened at the cross, as we trust in his word, his word transforms us and we become oaks of righteousness. Jesus said to those who wouldn't accept his word, he said, John 5, verses 38 to 40. You do not have God's word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you want to come to Christ, you've got to come to his word. That's where you meet him. That's where he works in you. And after his words began to chase all of the curious onlookers away, he turned to his 12 disciples and said, are you going to go away too? And you remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. As I wrap this up, I just want to go back to what Amos said in the beginning, because that's kind of a principle of falling societies. That God's word goes out, but eventually in our sin we plug our ears, we turn a deaf ear to his word, we refuse his word, we reject his word, we, we rationalize it away, we come up with other explanations, we follow after other ideas, we become idolaters. And then the Lord, his patience runs out and he says, I'm going to withdraw my word. 
The throne of God is going to be silent. And that's your last warning. Because judgment's the next step. And when I think about that progression, refusal of God's word, silence from the throne, God's judgment, I tremble for where we are as a society. Because it feels to me that unless the Lord sends revival soon, what I'm seeing are pulpits across this country that are quiet when it comes to the Word of God. Noisy in every other respect. But the Word of God, if it's there at all, is muted and covered over and many distractions to it. As I was preparing this week, I went back and read a good book by J.I. Packer called God Has Spoken. Let me just read to you his evaluation quickly. What then must be said of the mass of our churches today? For at no time, perhaps since the Reformation, have Protestant Christians as a body been so unsure, tentative, and confused as to what they should believe and do. Certainly about the great issues of the Christian faith and conduct is, is certainty about the great issues of the Christian faith and conduct is lacking all along the line. The outside observer sees us as a staggering on from gimmick to gimmick and stunt to stunt like so many drunks in a fog, not knowing at all where we are or how, which way we should be going. Preaching is hazy, heads are muddled, hearts fret, doubts drain our strength, uncertainty paralyzes action. We know in our bones that we were made for certainty and we cannot be happy without it. Yet, unlike the first Christians who in three centuries won the Roman world and those later Christians who pioneered the Reformation and the Puritan Awakening and the Evangelical Revival and the great missionary movement of the last century, we lack certainty. Why is this? We blame the external pressures of modern secularism. But this is like Eve blaming the serpent. The real trouble is not in our circumstances, but in ourselves. The truth is that we have grieved the Spirit and God has withheld the Spirit. We stand under divine judgment. For two generations or more, our churches have suffered from a famine of hearing of the words of the Lord. For us, too, the Word of God is, in a real sense, lost. I pray that that's never true of this pulpit. And if I'm standing here when that ever is true... Drag me out of it. Because it's the word of God that produces oaks of righteousness. It is the word of God that transforms people, congregations, and communities. The only hope of success in this ministry is the proclamation and the teaching of the word of God. Paul's words to Timothy must be heeded before it's too late. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We talk a lot around here about expository preaching. And that's a code word we use. All we're trying to say there is that the preaching and the teaching of the church must be directly from the word. A sermon, the point of every sermon preached in the church should always come from the text. The point of the text is the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is the point of the text. It's God's word speaking, not men's words. That's where life and vitality And security and stability and longevity, that's where it comes from in the church. If you'll notice on the front of your bulletin, we have that new logo. I hope you've seen it over the last 
month or so. That new logo represents our commitment as a leadership. Our commitment as a leadership is that our definition of success is going to be found here in Isaiah 61 and Psalm 1. Remember what we read earlier in Psalm 1? Talking about those who delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And that's the prosperity that we're seeking. I don't know what that looks like in terms of attendance, programs, buildings. I have no idea. But biblically, I know it looks like the oaks of righteousness that Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 61. The tree planted by the water with deep roots in the word of God. That's what success looks like. And our commitment to you as leaders of the church is that we're going to define success that way. Discipling you in the word of God is our central priority And let's trust God to bring the growth to this work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've not left us to grope in the darkness. You've not left us to own our own devices, our own intellect. Not left us to philosophers or scientists or politicians. Thank you that you made us verbal creatures. And you spoke to us by your word. And we thank you that ultimately Christ is the word. And may he always be glorified in what we say and do in this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.